Good morning. So this is the uh, third of three talks and explorations that started uh, the day after the uh, birthday of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, continued last week, the, the week of the uh, federal holiday related to his birth. It's been an exploration of what I've come to call the shared heart of Buddhist practice and the life and work of Dr. King. And in the first two sessions, I particularly focus on three themes, which are a beautiful way, I think, to uh, get at the heart of our uh, Buddhist-based practice, but also can really connect with the essence of the approach of Dr. King, and I would say of other spiritually grounded uh, uh, activists, people working in service in the world and so forth. And so what I want to do today is briefly go over those three themes and then continue where I was starting last time and, and take the bulk of the talk on what I had as an imagined uh, dialogue between the Buddha and Dr. King. Okay. And I I forgot to bring, I was going to bring in some uh, photos of our two, well, we have one of our figures here. <laughs> so the three themes, I think, are uh, both get at the heart of what's shared and, and the approaches, but also, I think, are uh, quite a very simple way to get to the heart of our practice. Those three themes are the themes, first, of coming from the wisdom perspective of pointing towards non-reactivity, more from the Buddhist angle, non-violence from the perspective of Dr. King, and seeing what the, what, what the non-reactivity and non-violence mean. Secondly, looking at the way that for both approaches, coming from a heart of love or metta or compassion is also right at the center of how we understand practice. And then the third theme was the way that uh, a sense of integrity, of wholeness, of uh, consistency, of the coherence of one's life, uh, authenticity, the way that a sense of integrity, of wholeness, is so central to both approaches, you know, that we want our practice not just to be there, as it were, on the cushion in formal practice, but to be there in all the parts of our lives and the challenges of doing that. So briefly on those three themes, which again, I think is wonderful checklist for practice, right? It's, it's helpful in our practice sometimes to keep things quite simple and be able to maybe for a given challenging situation to say how do I want to act, respond in the situation and to say okay I'll do non-reactivity, compassion and integrity. Great, okay, ready. <laughs> ready for the situation, right? So I think that's, that can be quite useful to have that sense of things. And uh, so in terms of the first theme of non-reactivity and non-violence, uh, non more uh, from the perspective of King or, or other advocates of non-violence like Gandhi, Dorothy Day, and so forth. Uh, for the Buddha, the teaching was very simple. I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. And I've interpreted dukkha not as it's usually translated as suffering, which I think can be confusing, but as non-reactivity. Namely, the capacity when something uh, difficult or unpleasant is present, not to simply react. And the other part of that is not to react by grasping after what we take to be pleasant. And so you, you'll know in the Four Noble Truths, 
which is often taken to be the core teaching, the first noble truth is the truth that there's dukkha, usually seen as the presence of the unpleasant. And then the second noble truth is that there is some kind of, uh, there's a cause of the dukkha which is taken to be grasping. And interestingly, the first noble truth is expressing one dimension of reactivity, namely what occurs when the unpleasant is there, and it's linking it to the second aspect of reactivity, which is grasping after the pleasant, right? That can be confusing unless we see the commonality in reactivity. And I took us back to the teaching of the two arrows, the sense of uh, the two arrows being the teaching that when there is something unpleasant or difficult, whether it's physical, emotional, interpersonal, related to uh, injustice and so forth, we will tend to be reactive and want to push it away. And that would be, uh, we will tend to do that. That, said the Buddha, is like relating to the first arrow of something unpleasant, difficult, unjust, etc., by shooting a second arrow, reactivity, as if that would help. And of course the Buddha says, it doesn't help. Right, and so how do we how do we work with that? And so this is really a core teaching, and I, I think for me this, this teaching of the two arrows is a clearer teaching about the heart of the practice being about non-reactivity. Right, it really points toward that. And I I had some other expressions of that. I wanted to see. This is from one of the great spiritual figures of the 20th century. Tell me if you know who said this. Always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them, and then you destroy yourself. Who said that? Richard Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> a little bit of a setup, but that was, that was Richard Nixon's farewell address to his staff where he was under threat of being impeached and so forth, but he actually said that. Others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. So I don't know if he always practiced that. <laughs> but at that moment, the Dharma was coming through. One of our presidents. So who knows what will happen with the current one. <laughs> Be on the lookout for expressions of Dharma. <laughs> And then I also, I also saw another expression of it, just I think it was yesterday or the day before uh, in the San Francisco Chronicle. There was a very moving article about someone who originally from this area, Marin County, named uh, Jason uh, Rezaian, who was a, a, a journalist who was uh, arrested sort of as a pawn uh, by Iran and was in solitary confinement and all sorts of pretty horrible things, I think for like three, three years. 544 days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About a, almost two years, right? Yeah. And uh, do you know, anyone know him? Yeah, some of you know him. So, yeah, from this area. And he just came out with a book about his experience. And I, I found in the article, it quoted him as saying, uh, I told myself, because he was, it was very easy to be triggered, right? Solitary confinement, you know, who knows how long he would be there, and you know, the, what he took to be the absurdity of it. He, he was taken to be a, a spy for the CIA, and part of the evidence that the Iran gave was that he had, uh, uh, had a tongue-in-cheek uh, uh, crowdfund attempt to fund a, a, an avocado farm in Iran. <laughs> and this was taken as part of the evidence that he was working for the CIA. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, and he said uh, that his approach was, um, I told myself I'm going to deal with this the way I deal with any situation, low decibels, try to keep it light and funny, and just don't make any more problems for myself. So not shooting the second arrow. One other expression that I like very much, this is from Sylvia. She was at a, uh, I think, a, a bar mitzvah in Chicago with her extended family. 
and her grandson was there, and her grandson um, um, didn't like some of the food. He said, I really don't like uh, gefilte fish. <laughs> and they were recommending at this bar mitzvah that people uh, put horseradish on the gefilte fish. Right? Very customary. <laughs> and uh, her grandson came to Sylvia and gave her an expression of the teaching of the two arrows, saying, now I know how you can make something horrible worse. <laughs> so that's our, that's our first teaching. Is, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, very fundamental teaching. Again, so crucial. Something difficult happens. You have a difficult interaction with someone close to you be on the lookout for the two hours. And I mentioned last time that um, there's a lot we could say. There are a lot of ways to practice with this. And there are a lot of subtleties and complexities. One of the, probably the main one is that often we are reactive because something happened that might be problematic, wrong, unethical, unjust. We still can be reactive towards it. And we tend sometimes when something happens that we see as problematic, to think that reactivity is okay because that's clearly wrong, right? But it's, n it's not the case. And, you know, of course, we have the counterpart with Dr. King is going to say, as it were, pain and oppression have been given to us. We will not give back pain and oppression. And yet we will respond fully. And so this is the complexity. How do you respond fully without being reactive? Because a full response is crucial I mentioned last time it could be something someone hasn't kept an agreement, done something unethical. It's not like you want to let it go. That's not what this teaching is about. You don't just let it go. Oh, I'm spiritual. I let everything go. That's not real. That's that's more like spiritual bypassing, right? And so, how do we respond, but in a non-reactive way? And so, we could, you know, in the past, we've sometimes explored how do we do that. We could have a whole. Uh, series on that. How do we respond when difficult things occur, but in a non-reactive way? How do we respond when something's unethical, unjust, problematic, and so forth? Right. So I'm not going to go so much into that, but I think that's at the heart of both approaches. How do we do that skillfully? Maybe we can explore that, you know, in the discussion time. So the second theme is that of bringing, at the center of our practice, having love, metta, compassion. And sometimes it's said that the teachings of the Dharma are like a bird with two wings. It's the wing of um, wisdom on the one hand and compassion on the other. And so this second theme, again, I think it really gets at right the heart of practice. How do we bring in that sense of care, compassion, and so forth? Uh, I mentioned, I like a phrase from my, my co-teacher of the recent Meta retreat, Anushka Fernandopoulos said, Meta is unstoppable friendliness. <laughs> how, do we, how do we have that sense? And again, we pointed for all of these three, we pointed to ways of practicing. You know, ways of practicing, not shooting the second arrow. Uh, how do we practice? How do we have a regular practice that keeps us in connection with our kind heart? That's because again, the aim of these weeks is to guide our practice, to give energy and impetus for our practice. How do we practice? And here we could find just one of the ways to bring out the kind heart. It might be loving kindness or metta practice, compassion practice, forgiveness practice, empathy. Last time I, I talked about what I found to be uh, Dr. King's enormous empathy for people who seem to be on the other side. And this is very much related to the aim uh, with Dr. King, the traditions of nonviolence. You don't defeat the enemy or the opponent, but rather you bring about reconciliation and what King called the beloved community. Right? Again, how do you do that in practice? Not easy. You have a difficulty with someone, someone close to you. How do you take that disagreement, difficulty, misunderstanding and work with it with skillful speech 
so that the relationship becomes deeper. I think we know that that's possible, right? It's possible if we're really skillful with conflicts, differences, difficulties with people we care about, that it actually, if, especially if the other person's willing, a big if, <laughs> you know, but that the relationship can get deeper and we have more capacity as a twosome, as it were. We have more capacity to work with what's challenging, right? How do we do that, right? How do we do that socially? Again, it takes tremendous uh, skill and wisdom to move towards uh, uh, having that approach with injustice or with social problems. How do we take, uh, Gandhi said, I want when we leave India to leave with the British as friends even though they had committed atrocities at times. How do we do that? And again, I mentioned King's remarkable empathy, particularly for some of the uh, poor and working class white people that he came up against, the jailers, the police officers. He would talk with them and try to get to know their background, and his conclusion was they're basically pawns. They're pawns in the game, right? They're being used and their lives are not much better and they're deluded to think that they're better than people with darker skin. And it's actually, uh, it, uh, he said that it actually destroys their souls using, using Christian language, right? And he had, he had that sense. And this was for King in the Christian tradition of following that challenging teaching from Jesus, love your enemies, right? You know, we, you know, so again, uh, the, the centrality of love for social action and the centrality of love and kindness for our practice. How do we have that be our default way of being? You know, how do we do that? How do we do that in daily life? I know for me, particularly working a lot with speech practice and teaching it a fair amount, it really, I, I teach a lot on empathy. You know, as a practice, right? Which is the the intention to understand another. And I found it wonderful, simply in interacting with people, to remember, uh, you know, in daily life. Let me lead with empathy, right? Which which I try to remember as much as I can. Right? Very simple practice. To and you know, and then we sometimes hear, uh, given practice, concrete practices for developing empathy, especially to be able to tune in to the emotions of another person and one sense of what matters. Those two things, practice that, it goes a very long way. And uh, that can be the basis for daily practice with people you interact with. It can bring that kind heart, because the aim here is not to, again, not to give up your own perspective, but it's to come with the aim of understanding. So that's a second, a second pillar. And then the, the third pillar uh, was that I called integrity, and I uh, had the um, playing uh, two weeks ago of the beginning of Dr. King's famous speech where he broke his silence on Vietnam, and he talked about that. This was 1967, April 4th, New York, uh, a year to the day before he was assassinated. He broke his silence, and he talked about the anguish and the anguish of having not been outspoken on that, and I think in large part not to uh, cause breaks with President Johnson at the time, who was you know, accelerating the Vietnam War at that time, and yet he knew for many years it was wrong, and he had to live with knowing that he wasn't speaking up, and in his mind being consistent about nonviolence. And finally he spoke up at great cost. I mentioned uh, you know, some of the uh, magazine and newspaper editorials denouncing him from mainstream, New York Times, Washington Post, Life Magazine, his disapproval rating when he died, 75%, and, and so forth. So it came at great cost to him. And I also was thinking of, um, in a way, there is, there's a, a way that uh, actually in Vietnam, the Vietnamese Buddhists, starting in the 1930s, they wanted to change the sense of the two pillars being wisdom and compassion. 
And they said, we need a third, because they were involved in struggling with uh, the colonialism of France. And they said, we need a third pillar. And that third pillar for us is courage, which relates to action. I also think it relates to integrity. So there's a certain parallel, right? Can you see? So they said, we want wisdom, compassion, and courage. And it has a certain parallel with you know, the wisdom, compassion, the heart, and then integrity. And so the, the practice that I was inviting was just to ask oneself, where am I not so consistent? Or another way we can ask it, which is a segue to what I'll talk about the rest of the time, is where do I follow my practice? And what are the parts of my life where I don't necessarily bring my practice in? Right? Does my pet practice get confined to the meditation cushion? And I, there's a, there are tendencies, I think, in sort of Western Buddhist culture for that to happen. Sometimes I talk to people, I say, how's your practice? And people think that I'm referring to their meditation practice of 20 or 30 minutes a day. Right? How do you bring these principles into the rest of our lives? Not easy, you know. So the practice is to ask, where am I not really bringing it? Where am I inconsistent, you know? I may think about metta and love, but when I'm in disagreements with people, it doesn't look like metta or love. <laughs> Anyone relate to that? <laughs> right? And, and I'm not saying we should somehow magically do that. It's all practice, right? It's not easy, right? Sometimes we have to know um, practices and techniques that help us to enlarge our sense of practice. You know, that's why for me, speech practice, communication practice is so central because we, we don't necessarily know ways to bring our sense of mindfulness, loving-kindness, and so forth into communication. You know, it's not just a matter of saying, let me do that, but sometimes we need concrete tools and practices. That's been important for me, and we've explored that sometimes on these, on these Wednesdays. And so it also, it also points towards this larger question, uh, or larger uh, context that I wanted to talk about the rest of the time, which is this uh, imagined dialogue between uh, the Buddha and Dr. King. You know, and I, I mentioned last time, if, you, if that feels a little bit, you know, okay, a fully enlightened being, and then the imperfect Dr. King, right? Then we could imagine as a dialogue between Western Buddhists and Dr. King. You know flawed Western Buddhists and flawed, flawed Dr. King, okay. So, but um, I was imagining that dialogue and, uh, you know, from, I'll sort of come at it from both sides. So from the side of Buddhist practice, we have these amazing contemplative practices. What I'm basically going to point to is that if we think of the dialogue, there's something, there are things that are missing, as it were, on both sides. And there is something almost like a natural way to bring the best of both sides together in a new integration that I think is crucial for our times. That's where I'm going to go with this. Okay, so I'm going to point to what are the great, uh, amazing uh, tools, capacities, ways of understanding on each side, and what, what is missing or lacking in some way. And then I'll point towards that integration. So, uh, we have, with the, from the Buddhist side, we have these very powerful practices of mindfulness, loving-kindness, development of wisdom, uh, very uh, deeply elaborated set of teachings that approach, uh, that approach uh, the transformation of the mind and heart and, and even body with uh, very profound understandings and profound practices. And I think many of us have been drawn to these understandings and practices because they're pretty accessible. They're not sort of, for the most part, um, brought to us with uh, dogmatic religious beliefs. They're quite accessible. They've been uh, made accessible in large part by maybe the first and second generation of Western teachers who 
spent time in uh, Asia and who um, who brought these teachings and practices back but did so in a way which really in a way connects with Western minds with the Western idioms and so forth while not uh, for the most part I, I, I believe not watering it down but really going going to the depth of the practice you know which is an ongoing challenge and as I'll mention in a moment, this is for uh, people who grew up in Western context, who for the most part did not have any uh, comparable teachings and practices available. You know, we may, there may have been, you know, we, we can have teachings about uh, the centrality of love in the Christian tradition, love your enemies, but we didn't necessarily have clear practices about how to do that, right? And, and I, I mentioned last time that, you know, that in some ways some of the contemplative and mystical Western traditions have been somewhat marginalized. Still there, you can find them, but not always so easy to access. I'll come back to that point because that's sort of the point on the other side. And so we have these amazing contemplative practices. And then partly because of the largely monastic roots of the Buddhist practice that we get, the traditional practices were largely kept as practices done in a monastic community. So there's a community emphasis, but there's also a primary emphasis on individual practice and not brought into a lot of different dimensions of life. And I, last week I quoted a very, what I found a very powerful and prescient uh, quotation from, or uh, uh, passage from Gary Snyder, the, the Buddhist poet and ecological activist, who said that uh, historically Buddhist philosophers have failed to analyze out the degree to which ignorance and suffering are caused or encouraged by social factors, considering fear and desire to be given facts of the human condition. And then he said, the mercy of the West has been social revolution. We could maybe broaden and say social, the movements for social justice. The mercy of the East has been insight, individual insight into the basic self-void. We need both. Right? And that's gonna, I'm going to agree with that and, and point towards that. And so we have ways that uh, tradition, you know, uh, we don't have such easy resources for understanding how do we bring our practice into speech and communication. We have some guidance from the tradition, but I know in teaching and developing uh, six and seven day retreats on this topic, we've brought in a lot of tools uh, from other dimensions and had to, in a way, innovate our own practices to quite an extent. You know, we've brought in tools of nonviolent communication, for example, and we've developed practices because we have some guidelines, but a lot of the practices uh, are Mm, not fully developed, shall I say. That's, that's my, own, my own view. And then we also don't have very clear ways to bring our Buddhist practice into relationships, work, uh, and social justice pursuits. That these are not highly developed in the tradition. You know, we have resources from Buddhist tradition that we find, for example, from Vietnam and much of Asia that, that's sometimes called engaged Buddhism but we don't have it from the tradition. And so I'll come back to that. And one interesting point that I have found, this is sort of a, uh, a side point, but I, I wanted to develop a little bit, is that I've also found that one of the blind spots of Western Buddhists is how to deal with anger. It's interesting. I've sometimes given um, talks on anger here. I think um, not for a while. hope that's okay. Anyone angry about that? <laughs> um, but I, I, f I found in my own upbringing, and I can see it also, I can see it manifest in many ways in Western Buddhist communities that there's some kind of confusion about anger. And it's been something I've explored and actually have written some about, about that. But I think it's a crucial issue in terms of connecting with the larger social issues and maybe part of that dialogue Part of that dialogue between Dr. King and uh, Western Buddhists would say, 
you know, I think, I think you, I think you got some issues with anger, <laughs> right? And I think, again, Dr. King said that the constructive transformation of anger is at the heart of our tradition, heart of our movement, I should say. The constructive transformation of anger. He thought that anger worked with, if you don't transform and work with anger, it can be destructive. But there's an energy there, and this is, I'm, I'm kind of getting into the dialogue, there's an energy there that in the Western tradition, there is more of a sense that anger can sometimes come out of something very beautiful and noble. And so in the Western traditions, you have, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, God gets angry. Right? God gets angry. Uh, I know there, there was a, uh, there's a book by Abraham Joshua Heschel on the prophets, on the Hebrew prophets. And some of you know uh, Heschel marched with Dr. King, marched at Selma and so forth, and was a refugee from Nazi Germany. And in that book, he's, he has a chapter called The Mystery of God's Wrath. Quite interesting. So God gets angry, the Jewish prophets get angry, Jesus gets angry with the money changers, and, and, and then we, we, you know, I found later in some of the social justice traditions, you can find this sometimes with like Malcolm X and others, they said that anger is actually connected with love. That if you go beneath the anger, you'll find it can be animated by love, but it has to be worked with and transformed, right? So it's interesting, right? But I think there is a way Dr. King would say, I think you Western Buddhists, you have, you have, there's some issues here, like I said. There's some, there's some problems there. And, you know, I, I've looked, some of the roots of it are actually in translation. That a lot of the words uh, in the Asian languages, that words like uh, dosa, which I think should be translated as hatred, is translated as anger. So there's a conflation, I think, often in the translations between hatred and anger. And anger is seen in, in the, the words, the words um, that are translated as anger, often in the original context, the connotations are, this is something totally negative, only negative. But then when you bring that into a Western context, where anger historically has had positive connotations, like in the examples I gave, it leads to confusion, right? It leads to confusion. I think those words would be better translated as hatred. And so you have all these translations. Western Buddhists read this and say, look, oh, looks like anger is always bad. I should not be angry. If I'm angry, it's because of my own delusion. You know, it's a problem, right? So I think there are, issue, there, there are plenty of issues there. And again, we can read, you can read texts where, you know, read texts... Uh, this is from the Dhammapada, the translation, which I think is problematic, says, give up anger, conquer, conquer anger with non-anger. If one is not angry, then one enters into the presence of the gods. I think that's a bad translation. Right? And it confuses a lot of people, and I've seen that happen at Spirit Rock. People get angry, maybe about something which is really problematic, and they get confused. I must be unspiritual now. Right? Anyone experienced even yourself something like that, feeling angry and can you can raise your hand? Anyone can Yeah, so a lot. Right? So so I think I think that's that's an issue. And there are also I think the fact that um, a number of people drawn to Buddhist practice are somewhat introverted anyway and they don't want to deal with anger and so they say, Oh, anger's bad, I won't deal with it, I'll just be calm. <laughs> right? And they they uh, sort of use what they think is that teaching as a way to, to actually continue with their own tendencies and conditioning to suppress anger anyway. Does that make sense? Right, so these are some of the roots, I think, of the confusion. Dr. King would say, yes, we want to transform anger, but let's look at it, let's open up to it. Um, and so, um, again, you can when you look to the anger, and I've sometimes talked about a retreat where I was angry for 10 days in a row for like 16 hours a day. 
and, and took notes on it, <laughs> right? And that actually I did find that when I stayed with anger and was mindful of anger, it actually I stayed with it and sometimes beneath the anger was sadness and sometimes I would stay there with sadness beneath the sadness was love. In other words, the, if I would not see that or know that, I might just act out reactively with the anger, unskillfully. But if I did that inner work, I think this is the work of transformation, and I would actually touch the pain that was there, and I might feel sadness in relation to the pain. There's going to be some pain related to anger. And this is one of the ways we actually transform reactivity. Right? And this is one of the ways that we understand the complexities, as I was mentioning earlier, of reactivity. If part of my reactivity is caught up with anger, some of it might be because I'm angry about something that was wrong. And how do I work with that and transform that? I have to transform the reactivity where I'm just going to be reactive. So we can work with mindfulness at times, we can work with heart practices. Uh, if, for me in my retreat, the anger was always in the workable range. Right? So if, it, if sometimes it's too much and then we have to use other tools. So there was, so that's part of the dialogue. And I would say, okay, I think there's something to learn, particularly for Western Buddhists, about a more skillful way to work with anger. This, this is from Jack Kornfield. We can find gold in the judgment and anger we have, for within them is the valuing of justice and integrity. When we work with anger, it can be changed into a valuable medicine. Transformed, our anger and judgment give us clarity to see what was skillful, what needs to be done, what limits need to be set. They are the seeds of discriminating wisdom and a knowing of order and harmony. And so I think that's very consonant with what I'm suggesting. So from the other side, what does the Buddha have to say to Dr. King or Western Buddhists? You know, I'm going to be kind of parallel. And... Um, uh, where are there where are there limits? So I'll first talk about that. There's with King and Gandhi and others like uh, Dorothy Day. There's a very highly developed understanding of a spiritually grounded approach to injustice, which I think is so crucial for our times. How do we respond fully, but have it be connected with our practice? So you can see where I'm going. It's like the best of both worlds, right? That's where I'm going with all of this. How do we integrate the depths of contemplative practice with a deep commitment in our, in our personal lives, in our lives as citizens, as members of communities, to respond deeply but connect it with our practice? That's the integration I'm going to be pointing to. So with Dr. King, we have these tremendous resources, I believe, you know, not fully worked out, still a lot of room to develop them, of a spiritually grounded, uh, principled uh, nonviolence. We have also these deep resources within his own uh, black church of music, song, prayer, and community, which are very, are very powerful. Um, there are also our blind spots. You know, I think obviously for Dr. King in his era, um, uh, gender, sexuality was a blind spot. Right? We know. We know that history, right? And, um, and you know, we could look at that, we could see that as a blind spot from Western perspectives. You know, don't, uh, but then, you know, I mentioned that there's also, in the Western religious traditions, the contemplative and mystical traditions have been largely marginalized in, I think, in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam for a long time. It's different in different traditions, I think in Christianity, <clears throat> the mystical traditions have been somewhat marginal for 800 to 1,000 years, depending on where you look. Great mystics <clears throat> have existed you know, through the years, but they're not in the mainstream. And that's, that's a historical reading that, uh, that I get from reading historians of mysticism. You know, it was something like when the theology became that of and I'm not going to go too much into this, but when the theology became that of St. Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> which was, I think, around the 1200s, 1300s, then the mystical dimensions of Christianity, which were somewhat more mainstream 
became more marginalized. Still there. Again, you can go. You can find them. You know, I, I again I mentioned that I go every year to the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, where Thomas Merton was a monk. That's the very alive contemplative Christian tradition, very alive there, but marginal. Wouldn't, you wouldn't get it in the churches. Similar with, uh, Christ, with uh, Judaism, I think also similar with Islam. You know, mainstream Islam, the mystical traditions are not center. And so that's become, you know, that, that again, maybe the reason many of us are here at Spirit Rock, if the, if the contemplative and mystical dimensions of Christianity and Judaism, and maybe Islam, but especially in this country, Christianity and Judaism were alive, I would think Spirit Rock would not exist. I would say. It's very, very possible, very likely. And Buddhism wouldn't have much impact. Right. Maybe, could you hold the question till, yeah. till later? Okay. Yeah, I see something forming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and so, so you can see, again, the pointing is towards what brings together the depths of contemplative tradition, or at least a very uh, well-developed contemplative practice, meditative practice, with some of the resources for social action that are more uh, based in nonviolence, you know, not just Western, of course, that come from Gandhi and so forth, but what, um, what kind of integration does that look like? You know, and so uh, some of those actually come from, uh, uh, the, I think, an integration occurring. So you find that, for example, in Vietnam, many of us have been influenced by Thich Nhat Hanh, who's in his uh, early 90s now, still alive. He, he said this, uh, when I was in Vietnam, many of our villages were being bombed. Along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries, or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help the people who are suffering under the bombs? After careful reflection, we decided to do both. To go out and help people, and to do so in mindfulness. We called it Engage Buddhism. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. We must be aware of the real problems of the world, then with mindfulness we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. Right? So that's pointing towards the integration. Interestingly, he called it engaged Buddhism, and the word engaged, as far as I know, also came from the West. It came from the philosophy of Jean-Paul Sartre that he grew up with, interestingly. So this is a continual flow of East and West. Can you see this integration occurring? You know, Gandhi said he was originally inspired by Henry David Thoreau, right? So there's this interesting mix going back and forth, right? And, um, and so we have also, I think, a model in Buddhist tradition, which is very resonant with a lot of us. It's called the model of the Bodhisattva. You know, the Bodhisattva, the, literally the awakening being. And this is a being, uh, I think there's a, an archetype that's very resonant that developed out of the Western, the um, Buddhist ways of understanding the Bodhisattva, of a being who's dedicated both to helping others and to awakening. And I think this, this is becoming like an archetype which many of us find, find useful. Originally, the Bodhisattva in the um, uh, Pali tradition was the, who the Buddha was before he became awakened. He was a Bodhisattva. He was on his way to awakening. In the Mahayana tradition, this became understood somewhat differently as a being who, again, is dedicated to helping others and not just focused on one's own practice. Practicing deeply, but practicing to help others. Right? And so, again, there's, a, I think, a vision that we can have. And again, this is a, a way that many of us want to understand, I think in a somewhat still different way, the Bodhisattva is pointing to an integration of deep inner work and outer response. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful model. Uh, looking for, looking for that sense. So, has a deep wisdom, knows the inner dimensions very well, but is also skillful at responding outwardly, coming out of compassion. This is uh, this is from the uh, expression of the Bodhisattva vow 
in Zen. Living beings are infinite. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. And from a famous text called Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which is the Dalai Lama's favorite book. I always think of it having it on his bedside table. Right? So this is Shanti Deva. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. It's that sense of helping others. And the Bodhisattva trains in uh, different capacities, trains in generosity, being ethical, meditation, patience, energy, wisdom, skillful means, uh, and so forth. Trains in these different capacities. Uh, and very similar to what we find, again, with Dr. King, you know, where there's this outlining of ways to develop and uh, ways to train, you know, and uh, that uh, if, you, you, if you do a training in Kingian nonviolence, you'll train in a number of different capacities, how to be skillful with conflict, how to work uh, more skillfully with speech and so forth. Maybe I'll finish here. I was going to play a recording of Dr. King, and I think I'm going to um, open things up for, for discussion, rather. And maybe if we have time, we can do that at the end. But I'll just finish with maybe with uh, maybe two quotes. These are, these are actually from Dr. King. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. By its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. You can hear those different themes, the non-reactivity, non-violence, and also the centrality of love. And last last, uh, reading from him, This is uh, more about the value of patience, one of the qualities of bodhisattva. We must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. (laughs) So thank you very much, and let's... uh, See if there are any questions, reflections, uh, um, thoughts. Um, do we have the microphone here or, or not? I don't think so. I don't think so. So I'll, why don't you keep your comments on the brief side and I'll repeat them, try to repeat them. So we have, I see one, two, three, three. Yeah. Please. Um, I've never been clear what is meant by the mystical tradition. Okay. What does that look like? And is it synonymous with a contemplative practice? Yeah, what, what is meant by the mystical tradition in the West? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, those critical of the mystical traditions in the West says it begins in mist and ends in schism. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think the terms are often not so clear, but just a very brief response, it would be the approaches which, um, in which there's the sense that one can have the lived experience of uh, an encounter in, the, in Christian tradition with God. Some kind of, you know, it would sometimes be a vision of God. It's understood in all sorts of different ways. But it, the emphasis would be on lived experience and having a lived experience of the truth of the teachings rather than simply accepting it on faith entirely. That would be a brief sense. So, and then it would be very linked with uh, uh, some of the uh, monastic traditions which developed, which where there was an emphasis on um, spiritual practice, not all that different from what we find in, in Buddhism, like what they do at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky is, you know, they're they're doing spiritual practices all day. 
prayer, singing, manual labor, you know, uh, uh, keeping, you know, I mean, one person that I know who I visit with every year at Gethsemane, he, he, he uh, says that what's continually remembered is to praise God moment to moment and to remember you know, and so forth. So it's done different ways, but it'd be some way that the emphasis also is on lived experience rather than belief. That that'd be, I think that gets at the core. Yeah, please. You know, I uh, with regard to anger yeah. and love, there's this thing in between that I think needs both, and it's passion. So you can have you. Martin Luther King was a very passionate man. Yeah. He had his belief system. He was passionate about that. You can get caught in anger from your passion. Yeah. So I think the wisdom of the whole thing would be to identify that and say, oh gee, what's making me angry? What am I so passionate about? Then you can go somewhere else with it. You right, know? so so here's the, the link between anger, yeah. love, That's and right. passion, and the sense that one can uh, when one's caught in anger, I think that's the key word that you use, because the problem is not so much anger, it's being caught in it and driven to be reactive, right? That's the issue, right? And so again, often what's not distinguished is the experience of anger and what one does with it, right? You know, and there's often, an, a, 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 you know, a, almost sometimes seen to be that if you're angry, you're necessarily going to be reactive and aggressive. And it's in our culture, this makes it very difficult because people, you know, our Western culture is different. So, so comment was about also the Western culture, often that may be the case, but that if we find that we're caught or reactive, could there be ways that one can get to actually what's important that might be uh, linked with the anger? You know, a lot of these words are used in different ways. and. Even passion is sometimes seen negatively, sometimes seen positively, right? So it's, we have to be careful with the ways we understand it. But if we can, I said, okay, what's really driving me here? What's important for me? I'm angry. What's the value? What's the underlying value, need? What really matters, you know? And can I tune into that and try to focus on that and in a way work through the anger? But again, you, I, I think that with someone like Dr. King, I hear in his voice transformed anger. It's very passionate, very energetic. Yeah, thank you. And then, okay. Yeah, just to follow on the anger. So, what you said earlier was dosa, which is used quite often in yeah. reading, uh, reading Buddhist passages and stuff. Yeah. That doesn't mean uh, anger; it means hatred. I'm saying, yeah. I want uh, the question is about uh, focusing on the term dosa, which is when we hear. Uh, the talk about what are sometimes called the three poisons, you know, the, the root problems of our minds, of our being, greed, hatred, and delusion. Hatred, and as I've just said, it would be a translation of dosa, D-O-S-A. And I'm saying that, yeah, to translate dosa as anger can be misleading, because I think when these are uh, talked about in that litany, greed, hatred, and delusion, those are all seen as entirely negative, right? It's just, uh, and, and what I'm saying is uh, uh, the case with anger as well as in a lot of other situations where we might start to be, find ourselves reactive, is that there often can be something valuable there. How do we preserve what's valuable and work through the reactivity? And just to finish on that, is there a word for anger? Yeah, there's some other words. I think uh, koda is a word, uh, viapada. There's some other. I'm not going to get too technical and scholarly here, but um, but there are some other words which are more properly translated as anger. But I think even even to translate as anger, you know, um, I mean, it's getting a, a little bit detailed here. But but um, one analysis that I find useful from psychologists about emotions in general is that there are three dimensions of emotion. Uh, one is what's called uh, affect, which is more at a bodily level, and, which, and there it's, uh, affect is fairly universal across cultures. Then there's feeling, which is when it starts to come to consciousness, but not yet fully developed in language. And then there's emotion, so it's a third level. 
And, and the, the psychologist said emotion is always socially constructed. And so what that means, if you're doing translation, you're dealing with social constructions. And you're translating from one set of social constructions in an Asian language to social constructions in a Western language, and it gets very problematic, especially with something like anger where the cultural connotations are so different. Does that make some sense? Yeah, so that's my little semi-scholarly point. (laughs) Without being too self-revealing, I got trapped in the anger problem a couple of weeks ago. I got angry legitimately, I think, Yeah. and the person who was involved, the other person involved said, you've been going to Spirit Rock for 25 years, (laughs) consistently now volunteering for over a year, and you're angry? (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted to say, Fuck you, yes. <laughs> the, arrow, the arrow tattoo came off my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, sorry we don't have that on the microphone. <laughs> this, is what, this is, how should I say, uh, just a short version would be someone criticized you for uh, being angry. He said, 25 years of practice at Spirit Rock and you're still angry and implying that your practice may be a failure. And then and your response was, F you, I'm angry. Yeah. My reactivity bloomed. Yeah. So, yeah, so uh, again, you may have been uh, gotten further angry at someone misunderstanding how to understand anger in a Buddhist context. <laughs> right, but but yeah, and it sounds like you didn't necessarily end up in a good place. No. No. Still wouldn't get out. Yeah, okay. So Sarah and then and then back. Yeah. Um, throughout your talk I was thinking a lot about generosity, how it yeah. relates to kind of each of the pillars and the dialogue. Yeah. And you mentioned it briefly when you were talking about um, the kind of qualities of a bodhisattva and just thinking that, you know, generosity perhaps is the that like outward expression of the formal yeah. practice. So, yeah. But where I kind of am getting stuck in creating a link is like, what would you say is the relationship between generosity and non-reactivity? Um, what's, the, yeah, what's the relationship of generosity and non-reactivity given the centrality of generosity in for the bodhisattva? We could say, you could think of King being very generous. That's a, it's a great question. Um, I think, first of all, we, we, we explore generosity here around Thanksgiving. And so we have a talk, and by the way, if I, if I didn't say this before, all of our talks are on the website Dharma Seed, D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D.org, and they're freely available. And so what I, what I remember from exploring <laughs> generosity is that uh, generosity means that it's freely given. So being when we're in a place of offering generosity in itself it's non-reactive and in fact some of the uh, what distortions of generosity are because there's some element of reactivity so very interesting discussion in the text you know of 10 or 15 ways we can be a little bit off with our generosity such as when we want something in return or we want to create an image of ourselves right there there's some reactivity in the sense of grasping right and so I think that uh, all of these qualities would be essentially non-reactive. Does that start to get yeah, at it? Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah. yeah, great question. Yeah, we hadn't really, I think when we explored generosity, we hadn't really made that connection. Maybe, maybe uh, last one? Yeah, uh, when you said about uh, if there had been more contemplative outlets in Christianity or Islam, maybe there wouldn't be a spirit rock. Yeah. I, I don't agree because there's, okay. I mean, there was so much I didn't like about Christianity that having a place to meditate wouldn't have kept me in there. So okay. I'm not sure if okay. that's what he was saying. Got it, yeah. So uh, it, was, it was a comment about my speculation that spirit rock might not exist if the Western contemplative and mystical traditions were well and alive. In other words, uh, if Western history was different for the last 800 to 1,000 years, we probably have a few fewer wars as well. (laughs) 
and it would be a very different culture, right? Um, so it, it's very hypothetical. Uh, and, and you were saying that there were many things that you didn't like that you found in your uh, exposure to Christianity in this case, mm -hmm. and that uh, having uh, you know meditation in the side room wouldn't have really done it for you. <laughs> but yeah, so that makes sense. The question is, uh, would if there was a contemplative mystical tradition, would the core messages that you got have been so different that you wouldn't have been alienated? That's possible, mm -hmm. right? That that's really the point I was making. But I think it's you know it's. Um, uh, because you were getting a certain version of those traditions, right? Mm -hmm. That that often would be different from the way it comes through in the mystical or contemplative traditions. That that's. But I think you know um, who knows? I mean, maybe you know maybe even with that there would have been room for uh, you know as there is now for really for multiple traditions, and that maybe would have would have uh, drawn us. I know. For example, the, um, there often are gatherings at the Abbey of Gethsemane you know, of contemplative Christians and meditative Buddhists, and they find the dialogues incredibly valuable, and meaning there's a lot to learn on both sides. Right? So maybe that's partly uh, you know, that there could be some really valuable elements of Buddhist practice that might have even if our culture was entirely different and we were, you know, had had 500 years of, you know, uh, dominance in the churches and in the culture of the spirit of St. Francis of Assisi and had a totally ecological culture, you know, from that we still would have, might have uh, uh, found great value and spirit rock might exist, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I, I, I take that as, you know, I, I'm not, hopefully not attached to the thought that the only reason spirit rock exists is because of the marginalization of Western <laughs> mystical and temporal truth. But anyway, it's, but it's, a, it's an interesting exploration, but I think, you know, so that's, thank you for that. Okay. Good, so... Um, Let's take a moment and just reflect, because again, the, um, the core of this talk and of our exploration is really two things uh, today. One is of pointing out the uh, way that it can be quite helpful, and it's helpful for me and hopefully for many of us, to, to really focus on these three core aspects of practice, non-reactivity slash non-violence, the centrality of the kind heart, love, metta, compassion, second. And then thirdly, the sense of integrity. You know, integrity of wanting our core values to be there in all the parts of our lives. And each of those are connected with practices. And so if you'd like to continue or find that helpful, just consider how you might continue the practice with those three aspects, or maybe just one of them. For example, non-reactivity and taking the intention to explore how I'm reactive today and, and let it be a starting point for practice. That can be very helpful. So just a few moments to reflect on how we might practice in that way. And then the second emphasis was on pointing to this possibility of an integration of inner practice, inner transformative practice with outer transformative practice. And if that resonates with you, just to consider how you might take that further, the next steps you might take.
We'll close by offering the benefits of our morning, of our practice together to ourselves, to those in our lives, and then beyond those circles to all beings. May our practice be a benefit to all beings, again, always remembering that we are part of all beings. Thank you very kindly. Would have been great to continue with a little more discussion, and, uh, and I'm open to a little bit now. But thank you, and uh, see you hopefully in three weeks. And have a good time with Sylvia. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.